You're listening to Token Talks, brought to you by Wing Venture Capital. I'm your host, Zach DeWitt. There is this sort of very interesting direction that you can take a project like this in. And the realization there is that if you create these bond tokens that represent all these loans and you create indices out of these bond tokens, so you can have an index for Casper and you can have an index for Filecoin and an index for Polkadot, essentially what you can do is that you can start using these indices themselves as digital currency. Today, we are joined by Axel Ericsson, the co-founder of Vest Protocol. Vest is a two-sided marketplace to earn passive income on your crypto. Backed by Polychain and One Confirmation, Vest is creating a protocol for stake delegation and trading. What this means is for protocols that use proof of stake, like soon to be Ethereum, users that help verify and secure the network are required to stake their tokens as a sign of collateral. If you act dishonestly, then your tokens are slashed. If you act honestly, then you're rewarded with more tokens. Vest allows any crypto owner to send their tokens to proof of stake mining nodes, and then it will be rewarded by sharing and distributed token gains. Put simply, you can use the Vest protocol to earn passive interest on your crypto. Axel, welcome. Please introduce yourself. Zach, uh, thanks for having me on. My name is Axel Erickson. I'm a co-founder at One Protocol. And we're building a protocol and platform for stake delegation and trading. We want to target systems like Ethereum, Filecoin, and Polkadot. I was previously doing CS at Stanford starting in 2014. I dropped out in early 2017 with my co-founder, Zach, to Ethereum full-time. Axel, you're the second guest we've had on Token Talks, who is a recent graduate from Stanford. And we'd love some more insight into what the blockchain ecosystem was like while at Stanford. So there were essentially two waves of crypto interest at Stanford. The first one started in 2013 when Balaji, who's now the CTO at Coinbase, essentially had a startup class. And there were a couple of people there that we recognize today, like Andy Bromberg, who's the CEO of CoinList, uh, and John Beckes, who's working at Bloom Token. Uh, essentially, they were all there getting indoctrinated into this stuff. Uh, and they all essentially left uh, very soon after. So when I joined in 2014, there was very low interest at the university. It remained this way until essentially fall 2015 when Dan Bonet, who's a fantastic cryptography and computer science professor, had essentially the Bitcoin class. Uh, this was at the same time as Bology launched the Bitcoin computer and what was then called 21. So during the fall of 2015, we essentially had this Bitcoin class, and after the class, Balaji would come by and show us how to use the Bitcoin computer and talk about more high-level concepts like micropayments and payment channels. So this was really the start of the second wave. As you know, during 2016, Ethereum started to take off, and 2016 became essentially the first year of Ethereum with the DAO and, and all the craziness around that. But even during this year, the interest remained very lukewarm. We tried to start essentially a Bitcoin club during this time, and not a lot of people would show up to the meetings. We, we had trouble getting anyone really to our internal meetings. And when we had speakers, something like a dozen people would show up. And this was, you know, October 2016. So the interest was very, very sort of lukewarm. I left in December 2016. 
And essentially what I hear now is that there are hundreds of people that show up to the speaker series and the meetings are sort of overflowing, which is very encouraging to hear. I've experienced Dan only at these speaker series at Stanford. So it's been uh, over the past 12 months, it's been amazing to watch the change in excitement level. And why do you get into crypto? I've been interested in, in crypto since about late 2013. Uh, this is around the time when I bought my first coins. And in the beginning, to be completely honest, it was appealing because it was, it was very different to you know, your standard internet or mobile software where essentially everything is a DB app. There were some very interesting libertarian undertones. So at least for me, it seemed like there was this higher goal around voluntary money that was a lot more appealing than the normal narrative around internet or social companies and, and projects. That's where it starts. And then you start going down the rabbit hole. And what you essentially realize is how transformative this technology can be. And I, I think there are sort of two main end goals for this space, which are very appealing. Um, number one is essentially just around the widespread use of cryptography. So the realization there is that even though these cryptographic primitives like digital signatures and encryption have been around for many decades, they're not very widely used. If I wanted to send you a signature or a blob of encrypted data, it would take you 30 minutes or an hour to figure out how to actually do anything with it. So if we can sort of get this type of technology into people's hands and build tools that allow us to use cryptography easily, that would be massively helpful. And then secondly, which is the more direct goal of cryptocurrencies, in my mind, is to create markets for everything. So every digital service that you can imagine, like storing files or running code or voting in consensus protocols, there'll probably be some sort of market protocol that mediates that service, which is also a sort of very interesting thing. Agree. So this is an important debate for your company, but what are your thoughts on proof of work versus proof of stake? And what are the trade-offs uh, with proof of stake? Instead of talking directly about proof of work uh, versus proof of stake, we like to sort of step back a moment and introduce a bit more of a generalized model on how to think about incentives in general, because proof of work and proof of stake really has to do with incentives uh, first and foremost. So the first model that we like to use when we think about systems like Ethereum Bitcoin and, and Filecoin is that they're simply marketplaces for some digital service. And the idea there is that you have a set of buyers, which are the people that hold private keys and are able to sign transactions. You have a set of sellers, which are the miners that perform some service. And essentially what buyers do is that they send tasks to the sellers along with some payment and expect something in return. We can imagine very easily fitting Filecoin into this model where you know, the buyers are the people who want to store files, the sellers are, are the miners storing files. But you can also fit things like, like normal blockchains, like Bitcoin into this as well, where I'm essentially just paying some miner for the service of having my transaction included in the Bitcoin state or in the Ethereum state. So what's special about these markets is that they're completely open and anonymous. So anyone can plug in as the seller. If I go onto my laptop and I run the Ethereum or even the Bitcoin mining software, I'm a miner. It's completely permissionless. I don't need to ask anyone. So the trick when designing systems like these is, okay, given that any machine can sign in as a seller, and when they do, they can really send any message they want to the network. How do you guarantee that the service gets delivered correctly in the way that the users expect? So broadly, you know, the solution here is that we need to incentivize the machine somehow. And we think that there are really only two categories of incentives that exist. So the first one is what we like to call opportunity cost-based incentives. And the idea there is that you simply just pay the machine a lot 
in the case that it performs correctly, such that there is some stream of earnings that it loses out on if it does anything else. So this is what uh, block rewards achieve in consensus protocols. Of course, as a miner in Bitcoin or Ethereum, I can follow any mining strategy I want. But if I mine on a chain that ends up being non-canonical, let's say I try to do a fork or something like that, then there's essentially a stream of revenue that I lose out on. So this form of incentive, introducing an opportunity cost to cheating, may seem fine because we are creating an incentive, to be honest. But the problem is that, per definition, if you're using opportunity cost, it's the users that pay a lot because they need to pay a lot to the seller every time they buy a unit of service. So that's essentially the first type of incentive. Looking at opportunity cost-based incentives in consensus protocols specifically, and not just uh, market protocols, this is sort of the underpinning of proof of work. And the second type of category of incentive that we think exists is staking. The idea there is that you force the machine to put up some sort of token that has value, and then you know your protocol specifies all the messages that are valid. And then if the machine responds to a task with an invalid message, it loses a part or its entire stake. And the idea there is simply that we can create the same disincentive to cheat or the same cost of cheating while having the entity that pays for this incentive be the machine itself. Because no longer do all the users need to pay a lot in the correct case. The entity that pays for the incentive is the machine itself. So going from opportunity cost land, where you're paying the machine a lot all the time, to staking land, you're essentially just shifting which party pays for the incentive. So this, in our mind, is sort of the general argument as to why staking makes sense. It's a lot cheaper for users. So practically speaking, the way this can sort of play out is that when you switch from, let's say, in a consensus protocol from something like proof of work to proof of stake, you can imagine that you can massively reduce inflation uh, because you need to pay the machines essentially less in the correct case. So this is good for the users. So our sort of bet in the space is that because of this, most systems that can be modeled as market protocols are eventually going to move over to staking as the mechanism of ensuring correctness. So that being said, you know, you asked also what the trade-offs are of, of proof of stake versus proof of work. And I'll be the first person to say that implementing a consensus protocol to only use staking in a pure proof of stake system is very tricky. So uh, the issue there is that you essentially end up with a bunch of problems that are unique to consensus protocols. So this would be things like the nothing at stake problem, where essentially if all I'm doing is voting on blocks with my stake, that I can vote on every correct history at once. And unless there's some mechanism for these machines to sort of report on each other for doing this, then you know I'm not actually incentivized to be on the same chain as everyone else. I can just vote on everything. And then there are other sort of unique issues with consensus protocols that use staking, like long-range attacks where someone can, for example, buy a large amount of tokens that existed at the Genesis block and then very quickly build their own chain where they essentially just vote with those massive amounts of tokens on blocks that they like. And then they'll create a chain that effectively, for a new node joining the network, looks more appealing than the actual canonical one that everyone else is on. These problems have solutions, and this is partly what you know Casper tries to address. And I certainly think that it's possible, but it's a bit more tricky than just saying, Staking is cheaper for users than opportunity cost-based incentives, and therefore all the systems are going to move over to it. 
Yeah, no, proof of stake will open up a new set of issues, but it's been exciting to follow. So how did you have enough conviction to drop out of Stanford? Essentially, some of these ideas that we've been talking about today, for example, like the idea that these systems are really marketplaces for digital services, and for every service you can imagine, there's probably going to be some sort of open market for it. We were talking about a lot of these things internally, and what we noticed towards the end of 2016 was essentially we heard variants of these ideas floating around, and we decided... One, this is a lot more fun than than staying in school. And if we want to do something like work with Ethereum full time, now is the right time to do it. We didn't know at the time that, you know, early 2017 was going to become pretty crazy in terms of all the token sales and, and all of that. But we thought that it was the right time to do it and made a decision. What is Vest? Vest is a marketplace for getting matched up with machines that want to do staking and earning interest on your crypto. More specifically, the idea is that a user that holds cryptocurrencies should be able to go onto a website, find uh, miners doing a specific type of work, and then essentially delegate their tokens to those miners and then earn interest over time. What problem is Vest solving? The problem is essentially that in order to join staking, you need to do two things. One, you need to run this machine that runs the mining software and stays online. And then two, you need to put up all these tokens that are going to be used for staking. Uh, And the same people that are the best at running the machines don't necessarily have all these tokens. So by creating this marketplace where these parties can find each other and then perform work together, you can solve this problem. And walk me through how I would use Vest. The system itself is a generalized marketplace for how to match up these people that have machines with people that have tokens so that they can stay together. But the canonical example is really how would I, as a user that has a bunch of Ether, join Casper staking and earn interest. And essentially what you would do there is that you would go to the website, you would go to vest.com, and then you would find a miner that wants to do Casper work for some duration during which you're okay with locking up your tokens. And then you would simply send tokens to the auction that is being run by that miner. And then you would sort of be done. Um, That's the canonical example. There are a couple of important points about this, though. You know, it is neat to build this sort of completely open, generalized market where you can find all the machines doing different types of work. But the reality is that as a user, you really don't normally care about being matched up with a specific machine. And there are also some barriers to actually being able to do that. So there are some parameters in our marketplace that have to do with the risk you're taking and so on and so forth. For the average user, we don't expect them to even want to have to deal with these things. So essentially what we do there is that anytime you send Ether, let's say to a Casper miner, we give you back a token in exchange. We call these uh, bond tokens essentially. And the idea there is that now anyone who holds the bond token gets access to all the future earnings and then eventually the principal when the sort of maturity date runs out. And what we do there, and this is sort of the product that we offer on top of Vest, is that we essentially want to create a staking index. Uh, So you can imagine we create a staking index for Ethereum. We've selected something like four or five uh, miners that are pretty good. We've selected something like four to five miners. And then essentially all you need to do now is that you can go to the website and you can buy a bundle of bonds from these different four or five miners. So ideally, the experience for an average user is not having to go to the website and having to browse through all the all the machines trying to raise money, but instead just literally go and buy a token that is the staking token. And that's the only thing that they need to hold 
in order to expose themselves to that type of work. So this is the product that we want to offer on top of Vest. And that is ideally what the sort of best user experience should be like. So to synthesize that, there'll be a marketplace for staking and lending where I can lend my ETH to different Ethereum miners under Casper, and I can earn interest on that. And I can, it's also portable because I can transfer those tokens. Exactly. So you hit on two very important points. The end goal is to have a full marketplace where anyone can list and you can, you can get matched up with any machine. And when you tokenize these loans, essentially what you allow people to do is to exit and enter at any time. And this is actually quite important. Beyond being able to exit at any time, which is good because that gives a liquidity to the users, being able to enter at any time and being able to enter without going to our website is pretty important. We understand that you know, a lot of people are going to be hesitant at going to a website uh, that they haven't really heard about and then sort of send away their ether. But if there are these bond tokens now that are sort of trading on exchanges and you can sort of see a price history and say, if I buy this today, it probably won't lose all of its money tomorrow. We think that people will be a lot more comfortable participating in this. And then, like I mentioned, from a user experience point, if I as a user can just go and buy the Ethereum staking index without having to worry about anything about which machines are plugged in on the other side, then that is, is probably what's ideal. And what kind of yield can you expect to earn if you're lending your Ethereum to a mining pool? Is it 1% annually, 10%, somewhere in between? Well, it's a, it's a very good question. The way to think about this is essentially first, your rewards are always going to be correlated to the risk that you're taking. There's a couple of different types of risk that you're already taking just by holding Aethers. You're taking volatility risk uh, when you're locking up your tokens over extended periods of time. There's risk inherent to like letting code control uh, you know, your tokens. Uh, and all these types of risk are actually going to be um, reflected in the returns that you get. To get more specific, the type of calculation you would do is essentially to ask what a normal miner would get in Casper, and then essentially subtract whatever fees you need to pay to the miner. We call this essentially the reward split. So how much of the earnings go to the person putting in the tokens and how much of the earnings go to the machine. So you subtract the sort of portion of the earnings going to the machine, and then you would add onto this the extra type of risks you're taking by locking up your tokens, and then you would end up with some distribution over the returns that you can get. And how do you think about the risk of slashing? So slashing being if you go offline in Casper, the tokens you're staking are slashed. And if I am sending my 100 ETH to a mining operation through Vest and that mining operation goes offline, do I lose all of my tokens? The reason we introduced a stake in the first place was to disincentivize the machine from cheating. But now in our system, you know, it looks like the machine is working with someone else's stake. So what's the disincentive to cheat? It's fully possible that a machine chooses to do some sort of James Bond style attack where it does the worst thing it could possibly do to destroy the tokens. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, how do we disincentivize that behavior? And in general, you know, the answer to this question is exactly what we discussed before. Either we can use opportunity cost-based incentives, where we literally pay the machine a large portion of the mining earnings. And just like we discussed before, this is going to be very expensive for the users because they're going to have to uh, forego a big share of the earnings. And then for the same reason as before, staking is going to be sort of the cheaper way of doing this. So essentially, in our protocol, we have a variable called the joint staking ratio, which defines essentially given a user stake that is lent out to a machine, how much the, does the machine itself stake? 
there's an important realization here, which is that if I have 100 Ether, it's arguably more risky for me to get matched up with a machine that has one Ether at stake versus getting matched up with a machine that has like 100 Ether at stake or 10,000 Ether at stake. And it turns out that the ratio between the user stake and the machine stake is actually the risk that you're taking here. And this is, this is very important, actually. So if we were somehow able to engineer this whole system such that there would be no way that the machine could lose the money, then there would be no risk and therefore no returns. So it's actually very good that there is risk and that the risk is this variable that can be tuned and negotiated between the machine and the user. And will there be applications built on top of VEST? So essentially, we think of these bond tokens and the Ethereum staking index as the applications that we build on top of VEST. That being said, our tokens are ERC-20 tokens. Anyone else can write software that works with them, interacts with them. And I'm, I'm sure that there are many exciting things to do there that we haven't even thought of yet. There are some other sort of services or, or applications that you can build on top of VEST, the marketplace. And these are things like rating systems where people can come in and they can rate miners and uh, other sort of market-making services where you can provide essentially a buying and selling service of these bonds where we can buy your bonds from you if you want to exit quickly, and we can sell your bonds to you if you want a specific one. And how does Vest make money? Essentially, we're going to charge very small fees for using the platform. There are two places where this can occur. One is a very small fee on your earnings. This will not be there in the beginning, you know, starting a two-sided marketplace is difficult and we don't want to add unnecessary friction. The second type of fee is a fee essentially when you interact with us as the market maker. So if we buy your bond because you want to exit very quickly, or if we sell you a bundle of bonds that you want to buy, we can charge a spread fee there. Now, can I participate in the VEST platform if I don't own any cryptocurrency? If you don't own any crypto, but you have a machine and you want to sort of earn returns from performing work, you can join the platform and list yourself and try to raise money. The issue there is that if you have no crypto, then you have no collateral that you can put up, which means that it's unlikely that users would give you a lot of tokens unless you have very good external reputation that sort of makes it unlikely that you'll try to cheat with other people's money. How does the Ethereum protocol decide who's acting inappropriately and how do they decide when a uh, staked token set is slashed? Essentially, the Casper protocol defines what a valid message is. And there are a set of slashing conditions that essentially punish you. Sometimes you can be punished directly for submitting a message. Sometimes in case you're voting, for example, on many different histories at once, the system relies on other machines to sort of tell on you for doing this bad thing. But essentially the way it works is that there's a contract on Ethereum called the Casper contract, and you send your, your votes to this contract if you send bad votes or if someone else reports on you doing bad things, uh, then you'll lose your stake. What protocols will VEST be compatible with? The end goal is to target all market protocols. In the short term, we think Ethereum proof of stake is the big one, but we're looking very heavily into other systems like Filecoin and Polkadot. Filecoin may be a very good fit because there... If I have Filecoin, the cost for me to join mining is not just the cost of me setting up a laptop or running a Raspberry Pi. It's literally the cost of running my own data center with a bunch of hard drives. It's very unlikely that people that just hold Filecoin for investment purposes are going to want to do that. And what are the near-term priorities for VEST? 
The near-term priority is essentially to set up this two-sided marketplace and get our first product, which is the Ethereum staking index, out day zero of Casper. As soon as Casper is live, we want you to be able to go onto vest.com and in essentially two or three clicks, buy a piece of this Ethereum staking index, which is this bundle of bonds from all these miners. And how big is the market for Vest? The market right now is fairly small. There are not a lot of systems that use staking at the moment. We think there are going to be a lot more in the future. What we're looking at essentially is a small market that has high growth potential in the future, which is ideal. And who are your competitors? There are some other players in the space that are essentially setting up staking services. And the idea here is that I can go to someone who runs a machine and I can give them my tokens. What we're setting up in our mind is highly complementary to this, where we essentially set up an exchange, where instead of having to go through the effort of broadcasting yourself and setting up a website, you can simply uh, do that through our exchange and then get access to all the money that is looking for good viable miners. And what is the biggest risk to VEST not working? The biggest problem is essentially that setting up a two-sided market is very difficult. You need essentially the miners to join first or all the money to come first. Uh, We think that we can build a system that is so easy to use and and so useful that this is doable, but it it is a tricky journey ahead. How can our listeners follow the progress of VEST? The best way is to go on to vest.com today. Uh, we have an email sign up. We're going to do a series of blog posts over the next few months, essentially explaining all these concepts in detail, the full marketplace, how you can use the website, why you would want to buy the Ethereum staking index. So I would highly recommend to sign up for our newsletter there. And then if anyone wants to get in touch directly, uh, I'd be more than happy to, to answer questions. My email is axel at vest.com. Now, is the idea behind the staking index that if I buy the staking index, say I buy it with 1,000 ETH, those 1,000 ETH are distributed to different miners across the system, so I'm indexing across the your, your mining network, basically? That's right. When the bond is created, that's the way it works. But then if you're someone who just buys the index from someone else, you're essentially just taking over a position that has already been created. Now, put yourself in the head of a miner. You're incentivized fully to use a protocol like this because you want more tokens that you can stake. Therefore, you can have a larger share of future rewards in the network, right? So you're, you're fully incentivized to build up your, your pool of, of tokens that you're staking. That's exactly right. The trick is to always make it better for a miner to join our system as opposed to working on their own and to always make it better for a user to join our system instead of setting up their own rig. And what you explained, we completely agree with. If you plug in as a miner, you can essentially get more tokens to work with and more sort of leverage in whatever network you're doing work for. And how do you see miners competing against each other on your platform to win the contributing ETH from your users? There are sort of two main ways that this would happen. Number one is that the miners would compete with each other on the reward split. So, you know, if I accept a lower reward split as a miner, I'm giving more earnings to users, making myself more attractive. That's number one. However, these miners are not quite interchangeable. So, for example, you may have external reputation uh, surrounding you. For example, you're run by company X that's recognizable. This makes the service that you're selling almost unique, only Coinbase can sell the service of staking with Coinbase. 
So it may be the case, and we're not sure about this, that there's not too much competition around the reward split because everyone is essentially selling a unique service. And you have confidence in that service. So something like Coinbase would have a lot more, would still have a lot more confidence than a smaller miner, for example. Exactly. There is an interesting way of looking at reputation here, which is that your external reputation, for example, I'm being run by Coinbase, uh, is essentially all information that's out there that allows users to accept higher risk. And the idea here is that as a user, if I'm looking at all the machines to match up with, I may see something that I recognize and choose to match up with that machine, even though it doesn't have anything at stake on its own. Just looking at the on-chain parameters and what's being negotiated, that looks like a crazy deal, sending your money to a machine that doesn't have anything at stake. But I essentially have extra information that allows me to take that higher risk. I'd love to get a sense of how bullish you are on the future of these smart contract platforms. So I was I was talented up last night. I think there's about $115 billion of market cap for smart contract platforms, Ethereum being the largest, EOS being the second largest. Fast forward a couple of years, do you think that $110 billion, $115 billion will be a trillion, will be $2 trillion, will be $300 billion? How big will these smart contract platforms collectively be? I'm not sure I want to give any number estimates, but essentially having a blockchain that also allows you to write these programs or smart contracts that control where the money goes is massively useful. And it's very likely that essentially the majority of systems that end up being in the top five or top 10 have full support for smart contracts, let's say two or three years from now. And do you think there'll be multiple smart contract platform winners? For example, there'll be some type of smart contract platforms that are more suited maybe for prediction markets or gambling markets, you know, because they offer more censorship resistant decentralization, where others offer higher throughput and they'll be better served for gaming or for streaming, you know, high throughput social networks. Um, so basically, do you think everything will converge around one platform would be multiple big winners for, for different categories? I think two things are true at once. One, uh, there are certainly trade-offs that you make when designing these systems, which probably will lead to what you just explained, where there may be more or less specialized, if not full blockchains, uh, specialized uh, side chains or things like that. At the same time as this is true, the power law still applies here. So if you're looking at sort of the value of the currencies that are sort of shipped with these systems, you would expect uh, most of the value to accrue to a very small number of probably more generalized systems. Now, I know there are people creating money markets in crypto. And a money market is just, if I have a thousand Bitcoin, I can lend those Bitcoin to someone and I will be paid uh, basically back my thousand Bitcoin plus interest. Would you think about money markets as your competitor to the VEST protocol? Or would you say you're, you're more analogous to them or you're offering your own money market services? We think there is a, an important uh, distinction here, which is that in a normal lending market, this applies to peer-to-peer lending and the type of markets that you explained. When the borrower gets the funds, they can essentially do whatever they want with it. So maybe they go and sell it, they do something else with it, and then they're supposed to come back with interest. The issue here is that there's always this attack where I sign up you know, with a thousand axles, I take out a bunch of loans, and then I run away with the money. And because this attack exists, you always need very strong sort of KYC systems on these platforms. And this is especially difficult to build uh, in decentralized systems, for example, like those that would live on Ethereum. So our system is different in that when the machine gets the money, it can't run away with the money. All it can do is to either work with the money correctly or work with the money incorrectly. 
And then like we discussed before, we add these incentives for it not to work incorrectly. So it's, it's much more stable and secure. Yes. What mix of crypto assets do you own personally? Currently, I hold Bitcoin, Ether, Filecoin, even though they're not liquid, Polkadot, and some Raiden tokens. Being at the front lines right now, what are some important trends you're observing in the crypto ecosystem? Um, there, there's a couple of very interesting technical shifts happening right now. So the first one I would say is, of course, uh, staking and proof of stake. I have to, I have to include this one. Um, the second one is really around standardization. So we're seeing this trend where a lot of the new blockchains that are coming out essentially all use WASM VMs. And this is very important for interoperability and our ability to sort of write code once and then being able to deploy it to all these different systems. Along those same lines, there is a new project coming out of Parity called Parity Substrate. And what essentially they do there is that they create a template for what a blockchain looks like. So it's very easy to sort of modify uh, and, and tweak your blockchain and sort of still have it fit into the general model. One thing that I wish was a trend, but unfortunately isn't, is usability, where it would be highly useful to have something like a desktop wallet that is open source and uh, doesn't use any web technology at all. But unfortunately, we're, we're still quite far away from that. What is the big vision for Vest? I think that there are three things that we can accomplish uh, number one is that, you know, if you build something like Vest, you can create a very neat user product where users can essentially go on, go to a website and with two clicks, start earning interest on their crypto. Allowing users to earn passive income is a very neat product. The second thing is a positive externality. The idea there is that you can think about the security of a staking system essentially as being correlated to the cost of attacking it. And if there's more value at stake, then in order to take over some percentage of the network, let's say two thirds of the network, uh, I need to essentially bribe more people or, or buy more tokens. So the existence of a marketplace like this can actually massively increase the amount of economic value at stake in these systems, thereby increasing the cost of taking over a portion of them, thereby increasing their security. So that's sort of an important sort of end goal to help all these systems. And then three, there is this sort of very interesting direction that you can take a project like this in. And the realization there is that if you create these bond tokens that represent all these loans and you create indices out of these bond tokens, so you can have an index for Casper and you can have an index for Filecoin and an index for Polkadot, essentially what you can do is that you can start using these indices themselves as digital currency. You can imagine that the Ethereum staking index becomes essentially a derivative of Ether that is backed by Ether that is deposited somewhere. It protects you against inflation, and it's in the exact same format as any other token on Ethereum, ERC-20. So we think that these indices actually can end up being pretty good digital currency in general. It's obviously up to our users to figure out what you can do with that. But we think that there are some very interesting directions you can go there. What predictions do you have for the crypto ecosystem? Predictions are always pretty funny. I think it's fairly straightforward to make a short-term prediction, like one to two years out, you extrapolate current trends. It's fairly straightforward to make a very long-term prediction if you use general enough language. What's very difficult is to make the medium-term prediction of five to 10 years out. So I'll give you an attempt at all three. And then we can sort of go back to this and see what turns out to be right. 
So for short term, I would say that right now we're in sort of a crypto winter. And the next sort of big uptick in the crypto ecosystem is going to come after a few key technologies have been sort of have matured and sort of been deployed. These key technologies are proof of stake, WASM VMs, and some sort of interoperability protocol for communication between blockchains like Polkadot or Cosmos. That's my short-term prediction. And how far away from those three technologies coming to fruition are we? I think you'll see maturity around these things, something like one to two years away, certainly an uptick in the market, maybe even before these technologies mature. For the long-term, very long-term prediction, I think wholeheartedly that crypto is going to win, meaning that one, there'll be widespread cryptography. Every interaction you make with a machine that's not yours is going to be a message signed with your private key, widespread encryption, and so on and so forth. This is very encouraging in my mind. And then two, there'll be markets essentially for every digital service. And these markets will look very much like the market protocols that we've talked about today. What's more tricky is the sort of medium term prediction, five to 10 years. The only thing I'd want to say there is that projects that use only utility tokens, where you need to pay for some unit of service, are probably not going to fare very well. And the systems that essentially market themselves as digital currencies, like Bitcoin and and Ether, to some degree, are going to be the ones that sort of stick around medium term. Couldn't agree more. Axel, tell us about VEST's previous funding and future funding plans. We did a seed round in mid-2017. We did essentially some SAFT funding and some SAFE funding. At the time, we had an idea that we could ship essentially a payment token with our system. And if we did that, we could sell SAFTs that converted into this payment token. As we've talked about today, we've sort of migrated away from the payment token idea to a much, much simpler fee model. Uh, so going forward, essentially, we're trying to do this as a normal startup where we do equity financing only. The key takeaways from today's episode are, one, for protocols that use proof-of-stake consensus mechanism, honest miners will be rewarded with more tokens. Two, VEST is a protocol to loan your crypto to those miners and share in their token rewards. Three, for every loan made on the VEST platform, VEST will create a bond token, which will then be bundled together by VEST. Users can then buy this index so you can get exposure to what VEST is calling the Ethereum staking index to earn passive income on your crypto. And four, the market is small today, but is expected to grow rapidly when Ethereum moves to proof of stake and when other proof of stake protocols launch. Thank you for listening to the show. We're trying to make the crypto ecosystem more mainstream and welcoming. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review in iTunes and share this with one person you know who is trying to learn more about crypto technology. You can reach me on Twitter at Zachary DeWitt or email me at Zach at wing.vc. Thank you.